please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, which is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 8 to 14. Deuteronomy 12, 8 to 14. And that will lead us into our sermon passage, which is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. What a blessing it is to hear the Lord speak to you. So please give your full attention to God's Word as it is now read. Deuteronomy 12, 8 to 14. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan... And live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in safety, then to that place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Now turning to Second Samuel 7 beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judgment over my people Israel, judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him 
with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are thankful to hear you speaking to us. We're thankful for what your word tells us about you, about who you are and about all that you have done. And we're thankful, O Lord, though it pains us at times to hear all that your word has to say about us, about our sinfulness, about our estrangement from you, about our being dead in sins and trespasses. Most of all, dear Lord, we are thankful for what your word teaches us about how you have saved us from death. About how you have brought us back to life. About how you have redeemed us from your wrath. About how your son, the son of David, but David's greater son, about how he came and suffered your wrath in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. We are grateful for these precious, precious truths. We're thankful for your word, which is truly leaves of gold for us. And we pray that you would bless us now as your word is to be preached. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Now you will remember that in last week's passage we read about the massive celebration in all Israel because the Ark of the Lord was being brought to the new capital city. How all of these people, throngs and throngs of people came to Jerusalem to witness this, to participate in it after the the Ark of the Lord had been away from the seat of power for many, many years. Now it had never been in Jerusalem before. Jerusalem had just recently become the capital city of the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah. And yet, as the ark is being transported in, the people understand the significance of what is taking place. And so, thousands and thousands of people came to celebrate this. And we read last week of how David, after only taking six steps with the ark, stopped and sacrificed two animals. And how, of how he worshipped the Lord at the head of the procession. We read about how when the ark and David and all the people arrived in Jerusalem, and David had put the ark inside the tent that he had set up for it, the tabernacle... David blessed all of the people in the city with great quantities of food. And then we read about how he went home to bless his household. But there, instead of giving a blessing, he received a curse from the daughter of Saul, his wife, Michal. And we remember that last verse of chapter, 23, uh, chapter 6, rather, verse 23, which says, And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. <clears throat> Now that verse pronounced the end of what, of the most likely possibility of any kind of dynasty emerging for the house of Saul. Saul had one remaining child, Mephibosheth, of whom David would attempt to take care of. But any real hopes of a Saulite dynasty died with Michal, who died without child. 
Now, our passage this morning is about David's attempt, his wishes, his desires, which he expresses to the prophet Nathan to build a house for the Lord. And we read in this passage of how the Lord turned the tables on David by telling David that he, the Lord, was going to build David a house. But not an earthly house made of cedar, the likes of which David already had. He was going to build for David, out of David, a dynasty. A dynasty of the house of David that would never end. The problem, as history would prove, was that David's successors, his son and grandsons, and most of the other kings who followed him in the Davidic line were disappointments as kings. And eventually, when Israel was conquered and her people were sent into exile, there was no king in Israel at all. As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to think on on this thought, to have this statement in the front of your minds. God's promise of a forever king for his people is based upon the enduring truth of his never-ending love for his people. God's promise of a forever king for his people is based upon the enduring truth of his never-ending love for his people. The sermon today has three parts, three points. The first is David's plan. The second is God's refusal. And the third is God's promises. Again, David's plan. That's the first point of the sermon. The second, God's refusal. And the third, God's promises. So let's look first at David's plan. Back in chapter 5, verse 11, King Hiram of Tyre, he sent messengers, he sent cedar trees, he sent carpenters, he sent masons to David to build a house for David in Jerusalem. David and his men had just conquered Jerusalem. He had just uh, begun, uh, become the, the king of both Israel and Judah. And so the, the, the king of Tyre, which was sat on the coast of the Mediterranean, uh, to the west of Jerusalem, the king of Tyre sent messengers and sent artisans and sent materials, building materials, to build a house for David, a permanent structure. Because up to this time, David had pretty much been on the run. He'd been just like Israel's people of old, on the run, living in tents, living in caves, living wherever he could. And now in our passage, an indeterminate amount of time having passed, David is thinking of his own good fortune to be living in a permanent dwelling in the city. He's thinking about the relative peace that has come upon his people and upon himself. And he's contrasting that with the house of God, which was a temporary shelter designed to be moved around. And understandably, from a human perspective, David is concerned about his house being nicer than the Lord's house. And so he devises a plan to build a permanent house for the Lord. Verse 1 of our passage says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. That's a key phrase because it links back to that passage that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 12. As we've seen before, David knows the scriptures. And no doubt he was well aware of the passage that we read for our scripture reading this morning from Deuteronomy 12, which says in part, And when he gives you rest from all of your enemies around so that you live in safety then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and so on and so forth. Now David saw that he'd been given rest from his enemies. He knew that this had happened by the hand of the Lord. And so he believes now that it's high time for a permanent place 
to be built where God's people can make their offerings to the Lord. And so it seems like a reasonable plan. And David, like we all do from time to time, or should do, he ran it past Scripture. He tested it according to God's Word. And what did God's Word say? When the Lord has given you rest, then you shall make your offerings at a place where the Lord designates. I might have skipped over that last part a little bit. I might have have glossed it as we mere humans are prone to do. Oftentimes we read into God's Word what we're hoping to get out from it. But it seems to David like it checked out according to Scripture. And now he takes the next step, which is to talk to the Lord's prophet about it, to get advice from his counsel. Now verse 2 introduces Nathan from sort of out of the blue. We've never had Nathan referenced before verse 2 in our passage this morning. This is the first time he's mentioned. But this introduction is completely informal. There's no formal introduction at all. We read there, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. That's all we get as far as Nathan being introduced to us. We know Nathan is going to play a very important, a vital role later on in David's life. But here and now in this passage, David, he doesn't like the disparity between his dwelling place and the ark of the Lord's dwelling place. And so he runs this plan past Nathan and the prophet responds in verse 3, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, we read that and some of the men, those who have been able to participate in the men's fellowship or reading through the book with all your heart, we read that and we go, oh boy, do that which is all that's in your heart. Because we're learning that not everything in your heart is necessarily good. But Nathan gives these words to David and David's plan has received now the imprimatur of Nathan, the prophet of the Lord. And so for all we know, in all intents and purposes, David is planning now to move forward with this plan to build a house for the Lord. That takes us to the second part of the sermon today, God's refusal. Though Nathan is the Lord's prophet, Nathan finds out through a vision in the middle of the night that he was not speaking for the Lord when he told David to go and do all that was in his heart. How many times has that happened to you? Say something, well, this is the way we're going to do it, and then you find out from your boss, you find out from a family member, your parents, whoever it may be, oh, no, 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 can't do that. Then you've got to go back to the person who you said, yes, we can do this, and tell them, no, we can't do this. This is what happened to Nathan. As one commentator wrote, in his capacity as man of God, he thinks he can give King Cart, the king carte blanche. And so even prophets of the Lord can get it wrong sometimes. Even ministers of the word can get it wrong sometimes. And so Nathan is put in the uncomfortable position of having to go back and tell David the complete opposite of what he told him the previous day. But first, let's take a look at what the Lord said to Nathan in the vision. He doesn't flat out rebuke Nathan for telling David to move forward with his plan. He doesn't flat out rebuke David. But he does make it clear, implicitly, that Nathan should have checked first before making his pronouncement to David. And he tells Nathan to tell David, to say to David, would you build me a house to dwell in? Even though it seems that David is well-intentioned, it was still a bit presumptuous for him to take it upon himself to build a house of God according to his own timeline. Later we'll find out that David, because of the blood that was on his hand, because of the wars that he fought, the Lord did not want David building, in a sense, in essence, his house of peace. That would be saved for 
David's son. Well, the Lord continues in verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And the Lord goes on to say that all of the, in all of the places that he dwelt with his people, did he ever inquire of them why they hadn't built him a permanent dwelling? Well, the remarkable thing about what the Lord is telling the prophet Nathan here is, as Dale Ralph Davis does so well in pointing out, is the fact that God went to great trouble to dwell with his people. I've got a, a somewhat lengthy couple of quotes from Davis that I want to read to you. He writes, Do you see what Yahweh is saying about himself? He is the one who travels with his people and all of their topsy-turvy here and there journeys and wanderings. Do his people live in tents? So does he. Are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? So is he a pilgrim God, sharing the rigors of the journey with them. And Davis goes on to write that Yahweh is the God who will not enjoy rest until he gives his people rest. The God who stoops down to share the hardships of his people. The God who is not ashamed to say he has been traveling around in a tent with them. Now, when I was in the infantry, again, never having served in combat, but one of, one of the things our battalion commander, a lieutenant colonel, when we were out in the field doing field exercises as a battalion, he was out there with us. When we were sleeping in tents, he had his own tent. Now, it might have been a, a, a bigger tent than what we had. He, he might have had a private tent where we always had to share a tent with at least one other Marine. But he was there. He was living in the condition, conditions, the same conditions that we were. When it rained, he got rained on. He was out there. And, and everyone underneath him, in terms of the chain of authority, was out there. Well, the Lord is saying, he's reminding Nathan to remind David that he has always been the God who is with his people. He is very unlike the gods fashioned by the imaginations of men. He doesn't need a fancy temple. He doesn't need an ostentatious edifice to validate his existence, much less demonstrate his almighty power. He has nothing to prove. And so a tent has served him just fine. He is the God who tabernacles with his people, who dwells with them. And now he's going to lovingly and gently put David in his place. He says in verse 8, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. God is the one in David's life and throughout the history of Israel who has taken the initiative Yahweh chose David when he was nothing more than a shepherd boy. God has always been the one to take care of David, and David should not think for a moment that he needs to take care of God. Now the pagans, they were all about building high places, altars, and even temples for their gods. The unbelieving masses of people who surrounded them. They were all about building the gigantic edifices that showed just how great their gods were. But God doesn't need that. And even the temple itself, which God gave specific instructions to be built, that temple was pretty modest when it all came down to it. It was pretty simple. It wasn't ostentatious at all. Well, that brings us to the third point and the final point of the sermon today, God's promises. Well, now God tells David, he's not going to build 
God a house. Instead, God is going to do something for David. First, he reminds David in verse 9 that he is the one who has given David victory over all of his enemies. He is the one to whom all of the credit is due. David really can't take any credit for himself. And then, in verse 9, he promises David that he is going to make David's name great. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. He is going to make it so that David's name is remembered. And 3,000 years later, a a minor king from a minor uh, country in the ancient history of the world is still remembered. Still talked about. Still analyzed. His writings are still recited. God's promise to David is held firm. He tells David in verse 10 that he will appoint a place for his people and plant them so that they may dwell in peace. All of his people need to be settled, in other words. They need to have their permanent dwellings before the Lord has his. And then he promises David that he will give him rest from all of his enemies and then further promises David that he will make David a house. Now, we've already mentioned this, but let's state it again. In the context that follows, the Lord makes it very clear to David that he's not talking about another physical house for David. He is talking about a dynasty. He's talking about establishing the Davidic line. He says in verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And here the Lord promises David that he will not cut him off the way that he cut off Saul, which he makes even more clear in verse 15. The throne is going to pass from David to his son. And we know from the last verse of chapter 6 that it will not be a son born to Michal. We'll learn later on in 2 Samuel that it won't be a son born to any of the wives that David has has at the time that God made this promise to him. This son, who will be David's successor, verse 13 says, shall build a house for my name. And it is Solomon who will do that. He will be the one to build the permanent dwelling place for the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem. And then the Lord says something at the end of verse 13, which he reiterates in verse 16, which indicates that he's not just talking about Solomon here. Yes, he's talking about a dynasty, but when he uses the word forever, he uses it three times in between verses 13 and 15, or 16 rather. It gives new meaning to what he's saying. It gives new understanding to this term dynasty. The Lord isn't just going to build a dynasty out of the house of David by means of ordinary generation, where David begets Solomon and Solomon begets Rehoboam and so on. No earthly dynasty lasts forever. History bears this out. One of the longest earthly dynasties, the Ming dynasty in China, lasted for hundreds of hundreds, if not a thousand years, and yet it died out. It's no longer in existence. And in fact, under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the United Kingdom of Judah and Israel splits. And under Jeroboam, he becomes the king of the northern tribes of Israel. Still, even during that split, a son of David, grandson technically, sits on the throne in Jerusalem. So you could still say that God's promise of establishing an earthly dynasty for David's house holds, at least for a time. And God anticipates that David's son is going 
to get into a little bit of trouble from time to time. He says in verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. The Lord anticipates the difficulties that are going to come to Israel under these sons of David. And he does discipline them. He disciplines the kings of Israel and Judah. He disciplines Israel and Judah themselves. But it gets more difficult to hold to this idea of a physical descendant line of David dynasty the further and further in history you go. Especially when Israel and Judah are invaded and Jerusalem is sacked and the people are carted off into captivity, which happens only a few hundred years after God made this promise to David. What do we make of that? What do we make of the fact that even today there is no physical descendant of David who sits on a throne in Jerusalem over Israel? In Psalm 89, written by Ethan, the Ezraite, who lived during the time of David and of Solomon, we read in verses 34 to 37, he says there, he writes there in the psalm, I will not violate my covenant or later the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it is established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. How do we understand something like this when we see Israel... Jerusalem destroyed. The king carted off into captivity. And if you read further in Psalm 89, you'll see that a time of trouble, even though he's writing somewhere toward the end of David's reign, the beginning of Solomon's reign, a time of trouble has come upon Israel. And the psalmist, Ethan, is asking the Lord to remember this promise that he made to David. He's afraid that the Lord has forgotten this promise in 2 Samuel 7. Now, as bad as things were when he wrote that psalm, and it's unclear from the psalm exactly, exactly what was happening that prompted its writing, it will eventually get worse for Israel. Because of their iniquity, the Lord will send them into exile. He will discipline them with the rod. But does that mean that the Lord broke his promises to David and his people? Does that, is that what it means? Did God fail to keep his promise? Did he break it? Let me answer that with another question. There have been, or there will be times in your life where you feel like God has broken his promises to you, but is that true? When the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but you maybe sort of kind of feel that he has, is it true that he has just left you and forsaken you? Perhaps you're in the middle of one of those times right now. And you're feeling pretty destitute in terms of faith. Is that because the Lord has abandoned you? Does the Lord break his promises to his people? That's when, if you're feeling that way, if you're questioning that, just like Ethan, the Ezraite, as he wonders, as he's trying to remind the Lord of the promises that he made to David and to the house of David and to God's people through David. You need to remind yourselves of what the Lord has done. You need to remind yourself of who it is you worship. You need to remind yourself of the character of the one you call your Lord. He is the God who delivered his people out of the house of slavery. 
He is the God who dwelled with them in a tent when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, dwelling in tents themselves. He is the God who, despite all of his people's disobedience and sin, stayed with them and would not break his covenant promises to them. Why did he dwell with them in the tents for 40 years? It was because they rebelled against him at the foot of Mount Sinai. They made the golden calf. And so he said, none of that generation will enter into my rest in the promised land. But he didn't abandon them. He dwelled with them. Wandered in the wilderness alongside them. He is the God who faithfully spoke to his, prophet, to his people by his prophets, just as he does through Nathan to David in this passage, as verse 17 plainly states it. He is the God who is never far off, who is always nearby his people. And if he was all of this to his people of old, you can trust that he is still the same way with his people now. You can know with full certainty that God did not break his promise to David because the name of the promise was Jesus, as one theologian, singer-songwriter put it. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all of the promises of God find their yes in him, that is Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33 makes it clear that the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 was not fulfilled by Solomon or by Rehoboam. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus, the son of Mary, a daughter of David, was and continues to be a physical descendant of David. But though he is a descendant of David, he is David's Lord. Psalm 110, a psalm written by David, makes that very clear. The Lord, that is Yahweh, the Lord says to my Lord, that is David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus Christ, he endured that promise that, that the Lord made to David through Nathan that when his son is disobedient. The Lord would discipline him. Jesus Christ was disciplined. He came under the Lord's harsh rod. But here's the difference. Unlike Solomon, unlike David, unlike Rehoboam, unlike any other in David's line, Jesus Christ did nothing to deserve it. He committed no sin, no act of disobedience against his heavenly father. But still he came under the just, just punishment of his father. Why? Because he took your sins and he took my sins and he took every single sin of every single person who would ever believe in him on the face of the earth throughout history. He took our sins upon himself on the cross and he was justly punished for that. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin. So that you and I, we might become the righteousness of God. And so in that sense, having become sin, he was justly deserving of the wrath of his and our Father. 
Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, He came and dwelled with His people. He tabernacled with us. He suffered among His people. He healed His people of their infirmities. He fellowshiped with them. He endured pain caused by His own people's hands. This Lord Jesus Christ, He has not changed. If you find yourself at a point in your life where you are questioning whether or not the Lord keeps His promises, all you must do, all you need to do, or if you can't do it, find someone who can direct you to these passages of Scripture which teach you about who the Lord is. About His unfailing love. Who demonstrate clearly, which demonstrate clearly that He will not break any promise that He's ever made. He has not changed. The Lord has it. Just as He was with His people in the Old Testament, so He was with His people in the New Testament, and so He is with His people today. And because He does not change, because He doesn't fly off into a flight of of whimsy, you can trust that He's going to keep His promises. He's never going to back out on them or forget them. He will keep them. His kingdom shall know no end. He is still building up the house of David. And you get to be a part of it if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're built into it, baked in to the very structure of David's house. Now that doesn't mean that you'll never suffer. It doesn't mean that you won't endure sorrows yourself. But it does mean this. It does mean this. The Lord will never cast you out. He'll never kick you to the curb. He'll never forget about you. Or think that somehow he made a mistake in bringing you into his kingdom and try to to shove you out of it through the back door. He's not embarrassed or ashamed by you. He will be faithful to you even when you are unfaithful to Him. He will always bring you back. He will correct you when you err, when you stray. He will discipline you when you sin against Him and against your neighbor. But He does it all according to His promise. This is what a loving Heavenly Father does for His children. He doesn't allow them to live and get mired down in their sin. The Lord made a promise to David. And he will keep it forever. Even when the house of David uh, is fully built. When we go to be with him perfected in heaven. When you and I, when we are a part of it. Forever. Forever. He will keep his promise. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the promise that you made to David, which endures forever, all the way down to our day and beyond into all eternity, forever. You have given David and us a forever king. We pray that by your Spirit we always would 
bow down before him. We pray that we would never act in rebellion against our king. Because he is also our savior. Because of the sin because the sins that we committed yesterday that we commit today that we will commit tomorrow. He bore them in his body on the cross. We thank you for the salvation that you have given to us. We're grateful for the promises of the Lord, which are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We're grateful that the Lord Jesus Christ is the promise. He's the promised one. And we pray this all in his most precious name. Amen.